If we are to survive on this planet, the only home any of us will ever know, for our climate, for our security, for our future, we need nature. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. This is episode number 465. Well, 500 is getting ever closer. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to the elders, past, present, and those that will earn that great honour in the future. We acknowledge that we're broadcasting from stolen land. It's land that was never ceded. We can't hope to have any form of climate justice until we have justice for First Nations people in this country. We also acknowledge the incredible depth of ancient wisdom that they have accumulated from nurturing their land and their communities for millennia before their land was stolen. Three out of four Australian voters will strongly take into account the environmental and climate change policies of all the various political parties when considering how to vote at the next federal election. This is the findings of a new study where 2,000 Australians were asked what they think about climate, nature and politics. The research was conducted by a research firm called Mobium Group and a strategy consultancy group called Possible. In Nature We Trust is the title of this research. And why I think this is so interesting to hear is because, you know, the demographics keep changing. Young people are coming in. Every year there's new voters on the scene. And I feel that strongly because yesterday I had a, a talk with my now 17-year-old, but uh, in a few weeks, 18-year-old son. It just struck him that, oh my God, in a few weeks I'll be able to vote. And these young people, they will take into account what the political parties are doing or are failing to do. At the moment, we have a Labour government who claimed that they were going to do something about the climate. Yet, we are now seeing that they can't even reduce our emissions with those 43% that they promised we would reduce them with by 2030. Emissions are getting out of control. And we see subsidies being handed out to fossil fuel companies big gas project up in, in the Northern Territory where $1.8 billion of our tax money is being handed over to a fossil fuel project, a new fossil fuel project at a time when the United Nations is strongly telling us and all the scientists in the world are telling us we cannot have any more new fossil fuel projects. Really, what's the role of government? Well, have a look at what happened in France. A French court just ordered the French government to compensate the families of children who had become ill because of pollution. And that really you know, highlights what is the role of a government. The role of a government is to keep us safe, us, the people, to protect us against irresponsible business people who think that they can just pollute and destroy the climate as they're doing. The only way we can get a government that understands its responsibility and, and the role of government is 
in our elections. So we gotta get prepared for the next election. Anyway, what else has been happening around the world? Uh, Colin Market, OAM, you've had an eye on the news from around the world. What do you have for us today? Hello, Mick. Yes, I have, truly. And uh, my roundup this week begins in Europe, where the continent is bracing for a plague of mosquitoes in the upcoming summer. These mosquitoes, the warning is that they're carrying tropical diseases due to climate change. The EU's Centre for Disease Prevention and Control issued the warning last week, saying that the numbers of locally caught cases of dengue fever had increased tenfold this year. The agency's director, whose name is Andre Amon, said in recent years we've seen a geographical spread of invasive mosquito species to previously unaffected areas of the EU. If this continues, he said, we can expect to see more cases and possible deaths from diseases such as dengue fever, Tingayanka, and West Nile fever. Last year, there were 71 cases of dengue fever in the EU, and that compares with 74 cases in the previous 11 years. So it shows you just how prevalent and just why they're warning at this particular time. And he slates it very much down to climate change as the root core. Now I'd like to take you to Kathmandu in the Himalayas, where a team of international scientists has studied new data and warned of dangerous flooding and water shortages for the millions of people who live in the region. Unlike the European Alps or the North American Rocky Mountains, the Himalaya region lacks long historical records of field measurements that reveal whether glaciers are growing or shrinking in that area. But in 2019, the US declassified its spy satellite images of the region's glaciers, and they go back to 1970, and they provide a new scientific baseline. Now, with this new understanding comes a huge concern for people living in the Hindu Kush. Put starkly, their glaciers are melting at a much faster rate than they had ever estimated putting the populations at severe risk of either drought or flooding. The Hindu Kush Himalaya stretches 3,500 kilometers across Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Bhutan, China, India, Myanmar, Nepal, and Pakistan. That's just about the, well, that includes the two most populous nations on the planet. At 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees of warming above pre-industrial temperatures, glaciers across the entire region will lose 30% to 50% of their volume by 2100, the report says. And that will be catastrophic for the world's most populous nations. Some governments are trying to prepare for changes. China is working to shore up its water supplies. And Pakistan is installing early warning systems for what they call glacial lake outburst floods. And you should remember that Pakistan is still suffering from the floods that it suffered last year. Now, still in the region, a report from Balia says that the scorching heat wave in two of India's most populous states has overwhelmed hospitals, filled their morgues to capacity and disrupted power 
forcing hospital staff to use manual fans to try and cool their patients. The death toll in that region has reached 170 people. It doesn't reach our media, though, our common media. In the northern state of Uttar Pradesh, 119 people have died from heat-related illnesses over the past week, while neighbouring Bihar state reported 47 fatalities, according to the local news reports and health officials. So many people are dying from the heat that we're not getting a minute's time to rest. On Sunday, I carried 26 bodies, said Jitenda Kumar Yadav, who is a hearse driver in Diura. That's 110 kilometers from Balia. Now, while the northern regions of India are known for sweltering heat during summer, temperatures have been consistently above normal, according to the Indian Meteorological Department with highs reaching 43.5 degrees. Adding to the heat stress are constant power outages uh, across the region. That leaves people with no running water or fans or air conditioners in that whole district. And in hospitals too, that's critical. The chaotic scenes were reminiscent of the coronavirus pandemic, with families and doctors scrambling to keep so many patients cool and all requiring constant and urgent attention. Climate experts say heat waves will continue and India needs to prepare better to deal with the consequences. A study by World Weather Attribution found a searing heat wave in April was made at least 30 times more likely by climate change. And of course, this week also saw three consecutive days of over 40 degrees in Beijing. So Asia is actually under the, uh, the flamethrower at the moment. Now, back here in Australia, billionaire Andrew Forrest's Squadron Energy Company remains confident that the Albanese government target of shifting the East Coast grid to 82% renewables by 2030 is within reach, despite growing concerns that the transition is not happening fast enough to replace retiring coal generators. He said that Australia is experiencing one of the world's fastest energy transitions as coal-fired power stations, which supply about two-thirds of the nation's grid, increasingly bring forward their closure dates while renewable energy's share of the mix rapidly rises. Squadron Energy, that's um, uh, Andrew Forrest's company, is Australia's largest owner of renewable energy projects. Bearing in mind that Mr. Forrest is a mining magnate, it's a little bit of a worry that he's also the largest supplier of renewable energy. It's also a worry, from going from what you were saying earlier on, Mick, that the person who's in charge of the transition used to be a, an executive with the gas industry. But that's by the by. I've got a couple of quotes from Squadron Energy. It's important to note that we aren't starting from zero when we aren't starting today. That's the Squadron Chief Executive, Jason Willoughby. Uh, he told the Australian Energy Week conference in Melbourne last week. Willoughby said that a wind farm typically takes about five years to develop and predicted that many projects across Australia were, were approaching the tail end of that five-year period. I think we're going to see a relatively flat 
build-out of renewables and then a steep trajectory at the back of the decade, he said. Against this, modelling by consulting giant McKinsey and Company, presented at the same conference last week, suggested that Australia was on track to fall short of the government's target of 82% renewable penetration by 2030 and would likely only reach 65% to 70% unless the rollout of new projects markedly accelerated and the closure of coal-fired and fossil fuels was accelerated at the same rate. And on that rather mixed note, I'm ending this week's Global Report. Listen to our Sustainable Hour for the future. Our first guest today is Dr. Elodie Comprese, who is a marine ecologist with a passion for scuba diving and scientific communication. She's a postdoctoral researcher at Deakin University who leads the implementation of Spider Crab Watch, a new citizen science. And that, that's a term we keep coming across over and over again, citizen science. To gather information, understudied and iconic great spider crabs. So, Elodie, welcome to the Sustainable Hour. Tell us about your spider crabs. Yeah, so spider crabs are pretty fascinating species. They come together in very big numbers, especially in winter. The spider crabs are arthropods. That means they're animals with jointed legs and a hard shell. And so because of that, they can't grow bigger like you and me. They actually have to shed their shells, so extract themselves from the shells, and then they sort of pump themselves full of water and they harden a new shell on top of their soft bodies. And while that is going on, they're soft and vulnerable to predators. So we think that one of the main reasons why the spider crabs come together in such big numbers is to seek protection from each other. Uh, And that results in an absolutely stunning natural spectacle for, you know, people that can brave the cold water to see. Um, So that is happening right now. We're still in spider crab season. So kind of May and June is the peak time for them to come together in Port Phillip Bay. Uh, we know that they come together at other places as well of the Great Southern Reef. So the Great Southern Reef is pretty much um, from New South Wales all the way to Western Australia, about 8,000 kilometres of coastline of interconnected reef systems. And spider crabs is only one example of the amazing biodiversity that we can find there. And, um, and unfortunately, we don't know a lot about this biodiversity both just generally speaking, and and about spider crabs. It's interesting that whilst we don't know so much about this species, we're prepared to try to mine their habitat and also to use seismic blasting as well. Is there any evidence on on the impact that that has? I know it has on lots of other species, but anything on, on the spider crabs? So we don't know because it's such an understudied species, right? So there's very basic questions that we have about spider crab biology and ecology, which is the way they interact with other species and with the environment. Um, So we just can't tell. So we know that 
you know, marine systems, generally speaking, and certainly in this part of the world on the Great Southern Reef are under pressure from, you know, human activities and that range from climate change to pollution to exploitation. There's a whole range of different threats. But because marine biodiversity, especially in this part of the world, tend to be so understudied, it's really hard to know, like, how they're coping with all these pressures. I can't help but um, but ask whether they're in our local waters, Elodie. Um, are they in Carayo Bay? And are they fished for local consumption? Because I don't think I've ever seen spider crab on the menu. That's right. So, they, yeah, they happen in Port Phillip Bay. Uh, that's one of the main spots that we know of that get all the fame and the glory, so to speak, because uh, they're quite reliably seen year after the year in Port Phillip Bay, and we think this has been happening for decades at least, probably even more. Um, they do come together in big numbers outside of Port Phillip Bay, in some part of the Victorian coast, in some part in Tasmania and in South Australia, but not not necessarily very, very reliably in the same spots year after year. And the, the fishing has been happening um, in Port Phillip Bay and that sort of got media attention a few years ago because especially during lockdown, people were um, coming onto the piers. So when spider crabs come onto piers and jetties, they're pretty easy target. Um, because people can just lower nets onto the water and catch them. The past two years have been perhaps a bit unusual in that they haven't reliably um, been seen at this this site. So, for example, Rye Pier and Blairgarry Pier on the Mornington Peninsula and Bonnerung Country, um, because they've changed their um, the locations where they're aggregated, so when they came together in big numbers, fishing hasn't been as much as a problem as far as I know. Is it the time now where they are shedding their shells? Uh, and when that happens, do we suddenly get more fish because the predators will be attracted to them? Uh, is, is it seen almost that they're like the scapegoats for the fishing industry? Yes, the spider crab season is now indeed. So usually May and June are like prime prime time to see spider crabs. It could be sort of into early July as well. It's it's hard to know because we know so little about what triggers them to come together. And it could be moon phases and it could be temperature or it could be something entirely different that we haven't yet looked at. And so we think that because they are coming together in such vast numbers at a time, it's winter, at a time where the water temperature is cooler and at a time where there's perhaps not as much food in the environment, we think that perhaps they have an impact, as you suggested, on other species, including fish, but also including invertebrates, cephalopods and, and other creatures in the environment. That just hasn't been quantified. So we certainly see some predators around like big stingrays and it's quite a quite an incredible sight because there's they're gentle giants that can sort of reach, you know, two, 
three, four metres across, and that's that's an incredible sight. So we know they're there. We know of other predators like little um, Port Jackson sharks and, and other rays, for example, but certainly we are interested in working out the, um, the impact of the spider crabs being there on the bigger picture, so on the food chain. I'm interested in the role of citizen science, LED. Maybe um, we can talk a little bit about that. Because, um, first of all, funding for this kind of work is limited, not just spider crabs, but as I was um, sort of alluding to earlier, just funding to study marine biodiversity in general is limited. And also there's just the resources and the amount of time that we can spend in the environment as researchers is limited. The community is an amazing asset, right? They're already out there. They're already seeing things and, and you know, looking at various species, including spider crabs. So it's amazing to have them on board to tell us when they see spider crabs and where. We have a, a project on iNaturalist called Spider Crab Watch and people are invited to log their sightings. If they have photos, that's even better, but they don't have to have photos. And just pretty much tell us when they have seen spider crabs and where. And that information seems very basic, but we just don't have a good understanding of the progression of these gatherings through time and from year to year. And again, what kind of triggers might be at play when it comes to spider crabs coming together. So every, you know, every observation that the community is logging for us is has the potential to reveal new information because we know so little about spider crabs. That's grassroots action being part of the solution rather than relying on, you know, the lack of funding or, or being stopped by the lack of funding. So that's terrific. You've got listed down one of your passions as science communication. Can we, can you talk us through that? Of course. I think the word would be a very different place if more scientists actually took it to heart to be able to communicate their work to the public. I think a lot of what we do, you know, is publicly funded, but yet the public doesn't necessarily get to hear what we do or or in a way that's understanding uh, that's understandable for them obviously they're not going to read a scientific paper that we've put out that's full of jargon so it is very important to me that you know I, I trained myself up to be able to communicate my science to the public of course because I rely on citizen science it's even more important to me to be able to reach those people but just Generally, as a scientist, I think that's one thing we could do better. And I think that helps gaining, you know, new appreciation for science and for the work of scientists. Are we closer to having science communication as part of a scientific course or is that is that starting to happen? There certainly is progress and, for example, University of Melbourne is leading the way in that and they have, you know, degrees that are focusing on science communication and that, that's amazing. But too often as scientists we just expected to pick the skills up by osmosis, so just looking people that are good communicators and just hoping we can replicate that and 
um, yeah, I, I think there should be more and more degrees like what University of Melbourne has that really focuses on on these skills and, and getting that, translating that passion that we have for artwork into, you know, the general public. Has your study of spider crabs in our region thrown up any surprises that you weren't ex expecting? I think what people think when they think about spider crabs is that, you know, they come to ripe here or blagger here year after year. But through our studies and certainly citizen scientists have helped us yeah, keep track of spider crabs last year. Last year, for example, they came on the Bellarine Peninsula, uh, which I think was probably unexpected for a lot of people. So we think they actually happen in different locations and there's anecdotes, you know, telling us that they do, but because it's not necessarily popular dive sites where a lot of people are looking, it, we might be missing disinformation. So we've, we've only scratched the surface. This work has only been going for a year. So, you know, we're accumulating that basic knowledge that we don't have and, so for me, everything everything that we do is new and we don't really have anything to compare it to. For example, um, our team has worked out the number of spider crabs in a gathering last year on the Bellarine Peninsula and we found that there was um, up to 50,000 spider crabs. Is it a lot? Is it not a lot? I mean, it sounds like a lot of crabs, but my point is that we just at the moment don't have any anything to compare it to. So we're hoping to get more funding so we can keep on doing these estimates and we can keep on doing the work that we do so we have points of comparisons and we can see how, you know, spider crabs gatherings evolve year after year. Yeah. Now, if I'm sure we've got some uh, divers listening to us and, and they, if they're inspired by what you're talking about, would like to get involved, how do they do that? Yeah, so there's two ways. One is for people that are lucky enough to be out there in the environment and seeing spider crabs, and they can let us know log sightings on, um, so Spider Crab Watch on iNaturalist. That's the name of the project. Everybody can access it. It does take a few minutes to log an observation, but it should be a pretty simple process. So that's for people that are out there in the environment, lucky enough to live on the coast. Uh, but there are also other things that people can do, and one of them is uh, another part of the project called Spider Crab Watch on a platform called Zoo Universe. So what we've done last year is we deployed time-lapse cameras, so underwater cameras that were monitoring spider crab activity for us, and we collected a lot of images, and so we uploaded these images onto a website for people to go and check out and help us review so they can tell us if they see spider crabs on the images or if they see other species. And the whole point of this work is that no one has to be a marine biologist to participate. There are tutorials and, and examples with images that should be pretty easy to follow, and that work is helping us figure out the progression of spider crab gathering, but also the importance of spider crab for other species by identifying what else is there in the environment when the spider crabs are not around compared to when the spider crabs are around. Yeah, this 
standing for satin or fall for anything. Gotta give my all, I'm putting in everything. Common sense ain't common anymore. You'd think we were more intelligent. Making the impacts imperative. The latest trends, all irrelevant. Nothing's as wild as human nature. And I'm in a room full of elephants. God save the planet. But we're the ones that really need saving. We're too worried about what we're generating. And not about the next generation. Gotta do it for the family tree. And it's not too late, but far but time will slow down the clock on mother nature. I said you're testing a patient. inevitable and right now tomorrow looks terrible so turn this right up to the highest decibel so our voices are truly insuppressible change doesn't come from songs and platitudes it comes from changes in laws and attitudes it comes from action to the greatest magnitude but it results in a future full of love and gratitude. The state of the planet is really dire. We have ample scientific evidence today that we are at nothing less than a planetary emergency. We have a global climate crisis, but we also have a global ecological crisis. And the ecological crisis undermines the resilience of the whole planet, which means that when we continue to emit greenhouse gases, burning fossil fuels and degrading ecosystems, we are coming very close to tipping points, which would lead to irreversible changes that would commit all future generations to a planet that would drift off irreversibly towards a lesser and lesser state to support human livelihoods. So all in all, we are today at a point of existential challenge. And this is now well established scientifically through the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change 6 report, that concludes 1.1 degrees Celsius warming, the point we've reached now through fossil fuel burning and land use change, is the warmest temperature on Earth for the last 100,000 years, which means that we have crashed through the ceiling of the warmest global mean temperature on Earth since we left the last ice age, which means since we started developing civilizations as we know it. So fundamentally, we can say that 
the state of the planet that has supported what, what we cherish as a modern world today is surpassed in terms of the capacity of the Earth system to sustain that pressure. The first challenge for us in terms of responding to the existential risks we're facing is that we need to take a whole systems approach and understand that we cannot think of the climate crisis as only phasing out fossil fuels or think of food systems as only saving pollinators or think of health as only being a question of clean air or clean water. We need to now navigate and be stewards of all the planetary boundaries, the nine big systems that we know scientifically regulate the stability and the resilience of the entire planet. So that is number one, that we have to stay within a safe operating space defined by science for climate, for biodiversity, for land, for fresh water, for the big nutrient cycles of nitrogen and phosphorus, but also pollution and the waste and all the chemicals that we're loading into the Earth system. So interestingly, we today have so much scientific support for this transition in terms of what's the corridor within which we have to stay. So that, I would argue, is the number one. Number two is that we have to understand that this is not an incremental journey anymore. This is an exponential journey. It's about transforming societies, behaviors, values, and lifestyles, the world economy, quite frankly, in one generation. Our listeners are advised that the following segment contains coarse language that some listeners may find offensive. Hello, I'm from the South Australian Government, here to introduce our new law to put an end to peaceful protests in our state. That might sound like a bad law, and civil rights groups, legal experts, even our unions are saying it's a bad law. But here at the South Australian Government, we reflected on it and said, are we out of touch? No, it's the people who are wrong. Introducing the Obstruction of Public Places Bill. If passed, this law will impose huge increases in fines and even jail time for obstructing a public place. What constitutes obstructing is super vague. That's because we bashed this bill together in 20 minutes with help from the shit party and rushed it through with no consultation. Which means it'll pretty much target anyone. Unions and workers protesting for better pay. Students striking for climate action. Even someone handing out flyers. We realise this might discourage many of you from attending any protest ever again. But we're here to reassure you. That's precisely the intent. Which might seem odd coming from a party whose roots lie in the protest movement but it makes total sense once you realise we're now the party of the oil and gas companies who own our arse. And those companies are really unhappy that some of you sprayed paint on the Santos building and peacefully protested outside a conference where they were discussing how to keep making more money from killing the world. To which we literally told them, we're at your disposal. And to prove it, this guy, who is Santos's bitch, introduced this new law the very next day. But rest assured, it definitely has nothing to do with the fact that Pete's brother works for Santos as head of government relations. Cool and Normal. Also, no conflict of interest with Santos sponsoring police cars in this country. Cool and with this new law, South Australia joins other states that have recently passed laws to punish peaceful protests. Sure, our penalties will be the harshest in Australia, but be grateful because as this dickhead said, in some countries you'd get your head chopped off for protesting. Visit South Australia, land of freedom, where protesting only gets you bankrupted and jailed for three months. If you'd like to support this shitfuckery, please blame the greeny lefty losers for inconveniently disrupting 
obstructing traffic instead of the c**ts who are killing our mother. We love it when you fight each other instead of us. And if you don't support our new law, well, now would be the time to say, fuck this shit and peacefully protest in the streets. Or tomorrow, it'll be illegal. This has been a message from the government of Santos, I mean South Australia. Fuck you. Authorised by the Department at the Disposal of Gas Companies. Thank you to all our patrons for making the Honest Government ads possible, especially our patron producers. If you want to help us keep governments honest, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash the juice media, or you can grab some merch from our store. Our next guest is Peter Chomley. Peter is a local to Geelong, and he is developing biodiesel. And yeah, Peter. So tell us, tell us all about that. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on, and tell us about your why you're doing uh, producing biodiesel. Thanks, Tony. Good morning, uh, Mick and Colin and uh, Elodie. Uh, I, I've been in a uh, in a biodiesel business venture in Northern Victoria for the last five years, and uh, it's been an interesting journey. The, the plant itself, the operations uh, we purchased from the receiver uh, five years ago, and they've been around for, for 15 years. So it's a, it's a very modern, state-of-the-art plant, and uh, it's been a difficult journey for it. But uh, this plant can produce uh, 60 million litres per annum of biodiesel, which is distributed then into the, the diesel pool. So that's what we've been working on for the last five years and uh, probably the last 12 months uh, we've started to see some signs of, uh, of real progress. We exported for a little while and it sort of doesn't make sense to be exporting biodiesel to uh, the EU and, and, uh, and the US, but that's what we had to do because there's uh, subsidies in place in the EU and the US and that drives the price of feedstock. So. All of Australia's feedstock is exported for making biofuels in the EU and uh, US, which is kind of uh, doesn't make sense, but that's that's where we're at. And mm. probably the last last years, I think since the Labor Party uh, got into government, and probably this community uh, interest in decarbonisation around the world, it's been starting to make some headway, and we get calls every week. From weird and wonderful uh, people inquiring about biodiesel, uh, so we we kind of uh, I think we'll get there in the end, uh, but it's quite a journey. Yeah, Peter, I've got so many questions. I'll just I'll come I'll hit you with the first three. Uh, what is your base product that you you know? I mean, when I think of biofuel, I think of people going around the chip shops and getting the fat. Uh, if you're making sixty million litres per annum, you can't just be doing that with chip fat. Uh, number two is basically, do you do it all on a consistent level? So you've always got a, a, an amount that you could put into a Bowser, say, and then do deals? Or is it sort of um, running with how you can get hold of uh, the product? And, uh, and number three, I can understand why the subsidies are sending, meaning that you have to send it overseas, which really defeats the object of the thing, isn't it? 
Uh, is there no way that you could even have a local outlet where people can buy cheaper fuel and that would at least give them an idea? Because the big advantage, to my knowledge, of um, biodiesel is that it doesn't have the emissions that fossil-based diesel fuel has. Uh, to answer the first question, feedstock. So uh, the plant can process uh, tallow, which is, is animal fat, use cooking oil, which is, uh, comes from the fish and chip shops and, uh, and, and other cooking kitchens around the place. So we, we process used cooking oil, that's called UCO, tallow, and then uh, we also uh, use crude vegetable oils, particularly canola oil, but sometimes other oils as well. So we have a good supply of all of those three products and we're actually in the business we're an integrated facility, so we process tallow and uh, use cooking all ourselves. So that's on the feedstock. The uh, the consistency of production, we 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 tend to hold uh, product in stock, and because demand is, uh, we're not producing at the sixty million litre rate at the moment. We're producing at a lesser amount, so we always have product in in our tank. And so we, it's, it's ready and available for sale at any point in time. Does uh, it sell for the same price as, um, as the big companies sell their diesel fuel? Uh, no, the, the price of, uh, of the biodiesel would be about twice the price of uh, diesel. So that's a, that's a key commercial constraint, and that's where the subsidy difference comes in in the US and the EU. Now, how, how do you justify that? Is it has it got higher taxes, or is the product that you're buying dearer than? I mean, it, you should be able when you look at your product to undercut oil that's drilled for in the Middle East and then shipped here on tankers. Well, you, know, when you look at the bare bones of the system. Yours should be cheaper, shouldn't it? When you just nip down the local chip shop or get some canola oil. Well, I can tell you that the trouble is that the, all the tallow that Australia makes and all the used cooking oil that we collect is exported to the EU and the US mm. to, uh, because they have the subsidies which uh, support those programs there. So it's a kind of a, it's a, mixed, a mixed playing field. Yes, we import the crude oil, but uh, we, have to, we export all the, uh, all the, the feedstock. Mm. So... But that's that's life. We've we've learned to to deal with that and uh, work our way through it. That's politics. But is it um, is it as bad for the environment as oil based diesel fuel? Well, the 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 key reason it's called renewable fuel is because the feedstock is a, is a renewable feedstock. So it absorbed you know the the growing of the plants absorbs uh, CO2, then it produces the uh, canola seed or canola oil. Uh, so in that aspect, it's renewable. When you actually burn the fuel, it still emits uh, CO2, uh, probably at a lesser rate because of the, the formulation of, uh, of biofuel. But so it's, 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 not, a, it's not a total panacea. Uh, the key is that it's a renewable feedstock versus, versus mineral oil. A lot of remote communities in this country rely on diesel 
to drive their generators? Is your product looking more attractive to them? Uh, yes, that's an interesting question. I, I was at a uh, mining and energy uh, conference in Perth last week. So, you know, the, the, the remote communities uh, started to come to the fore and it's, I must admit it's not an area we've ever focused on. But we've uh, start, we have started to engage with a uh, Aboriginal uh, community in the in the Pilbara region, uh, which is focused on creating Indigenous employment, and they run fuel distribution businesses. And so, uh, they, you know, it's it's quite it's quite an interesting journey. I'm not sure how it's going to end up, but it's uh, I think there's going to be. There's people out there with ESG commitment that overcomes the price. Uh, you know, they might not use 100% biodiesel, they'll use 20%. And so they can absorb, you know, certain areas can absorb that price and, and are committed to the course. So uh, that's how we're going to build our business and, and grow. So that cause is a safer climate, essentially. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It seems to me there's a race at the moment in terms of, you know, coming with the next big thing. Everybody's waiting for who's going to win. For instance, is it going to be hydrogen, electric, or would it be something like what you're doing here, biofuels? And in particular, when we're talking about, you know, airplanes, also it's a question of do we need to replace the engines or can we f create a kind of fuel that is climate friendly? that can run on the old engines so we don't have to replace the engines of the trucks and the, and the airplanes how do you see that race and and are you hopeful that biofuel really will play a serious role in this uh ultimately it's going to be a mix mix of uh, options and uh i think that elect and having been to that conference last week uh electrification is probably the biggest uh shift because we have solar and wind and then you can store the energy in batteries the uh getting into the liquid fuel area i mean the i think there's going to be a limit to how much renewable fuel moves into the uh in into that space because ultimately there's an issue with competing with food and so uh You have to be realistic and not expect that it's going to. It's it's an older technology, and it will always have a place and it will evolve. Uh, and I think electrification will be the bigger journey. It was interesting they talked about hydrogen at this conference, and hydrogen uh, there's some thermodynamic constraints that would have, would start to emerge. I think. Yep, I'm I'm um, just putting into the mix here. Uh, the fact that our Ping, Ping Charles, at the beginning of this century was uh, driving an Aston, his Aston Martin was converted to run on biofuel. Uh, that was when he was Prince Charles, of course, and that got quite a bit of publicity for biofuel itself. But I noted that after the coronation earlier this year, uh, he was uh, interviewed and he said that the Aston Martin, he still has it, But it doesn't run on biofuel anymore. It's been converted to be electric. Hmm. Now, I think basically what he's done is um, is laid out the path of what you were just talking about, Mick and Peter. Uh, yeah, the the weight is coming down on electrification rather than 
going off into different areas. Uh, yes. And it was interesting when I come back to mix comment at the start of the meeting, but, uh, or maybe it was yours, Colin, talking about squadron energy. Mm. So the uh, a lead presenter at the conference was uh, FMG, uh, Fortescue Mining or Metals or Mining Group, talking about how they're going to be uh, uh, zero, de fully decarbonised by 2030. They certainly know how to uh, position their publicity machine. <laughs> exactly. And the, and the hydrogen too. I, I, I always um, take with a pinch of salt hydrogen when they come up with ideas of we're going to solve everything by burning hydrogen in trucks and things like that. It, um, it's much, much, much easier to electrify rather than convert things to a, uh, an, an extra new different fuel, liquid fuel, um, and uh, hydrogen itself. There are two hydrogens. There's the green hydrogen and the other hydrogen. It takes a lot of electricity to, to create hydrogen. And how you create that electricity, put stuff into the atmosphere, even if burning hydrogen doesn't. So it's much, much easier. The sensible course that everybody's taking is electrify your drivetrain and create your electricity by sustainable methods. You say, Peter, that you've sort of learned to live with the, the absurdity that a lot of the fuels are transported here and there, you know, across the globe. What would the world look like if it was more logical, uh, in your opinion? Uh, well, I, I think the, uh, the, the, uh, is it the, 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 gov the current government's electrification target is a good one. The, but in the, in the biofuels, it doesn't make sense to me to be exporting all the feedstock. And so a, a target of 10% of Australia's fuel being uh, renew from renewable sources would be the pathway. And uh, that may come by government support, but it also may come, you know, it probably does need a government support program to, to drive that. But I think, I think that's a realistic number to say, 50% is too much, you know, we don't, we don't, we're not big enough. Peter, have you had any, any communications with, with uh, government? So you're in the, most likely in the, the electorate of the Deputy Prime Minister, Richard Miles? Now, has, he, has he shown any readiness to listen to what you're saying? Uh, well, we, we participate through a group called Bioenergy Australia. And we're active supporters with in, in that pathway, and so we we tend to leave the government lobbying to them. Yep. Uh, and I, you know, I'm, we're happy to focus on local politicians uh, and and talk to them, but in the in the main, we we tend we tend to focus on running the business and surviving. And uh, I, I don't say oh, you become cynical, but you. You can only spend so much time on uh, focusing on trying to change policy. Speaking about what you were saying earlier, Tony, when you said it would be very useful for remote Aboriginal communities who get their electricity from generators. And my immediate thought was that what would probably be the ideal would be to put a small 
manufacturing plant in each of the communities so that they could create their own biofuel and that would save all the the fossil fuel miles of actually shifting it to remote communities but then the obvious solution is there you just you don't do that at all what you do is put solar or wind generation and just create the the electricity without having all the different stages that 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 would take uh, in that regard Peter, I hate to say this, but you're in a dying industry alongside the petro giants. <laughs> well, uh, having uh, been to this conference, uh, you will find that uh, the uh, electrification generation can account for 60 to 80%. And so you still need the generator, uh, the diesel generator, to uh, produce the remaining 20 to 40%. And so uh, I think our future is assured for many years to come. And uh, interesting enough, the, the, uh, the, the group, the Ashburton Aboriginal uh, Corporation that I spoke with, they collect canola oil, use canola oil from the mining camps and convert it into biodiesel. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to supplement their... Uh, their biodiesel usage. So it was a, I was fascinated. I can't wait to get to the Port Hedland just to check it out. So what, what you're after, basically, Peter, if, if I've got things correct, is that you would get a subsidy to bring your uh, product, the biodiesel, cheaper than the diesel that you buy at the Bowser. So that would force or, or that would encourage diesel drivers to come and buy your product and therefore there would be fewer uh, CO2 emissions into the atmosphere and you would have the incentive to expand your product and eventually we wouldn't be using as much oil from the Middle East or Russia. Uh, that's correct. And and probably the, the, uh, the biggest subsidy that the... Uh, industry gets in Australia is the fuel excise rebate, which you mm -hmm. may have heard uh, mentioned along the journey. And that's, that's a huge subsidy, but uh, it's politically unpalatable to touch it. So uh, it, it survives and, uh, and nothing changes. Yeah, that means that farmers get their diesel much cheaper. In, in a nutshell, is that right? Farmers and, and miners get their, their diesel uh, the most, the cheapest yeah. of anywhere in the world. Yep. And you would like to be included in that lot, would you? Uh, yes. Yeah. Which well, means a change in taxation, basically. Exactly. It's the, mm. only, the only way to uh, change it is, is via taxation. So, Peter, rounding off, what... Uh, is your statement to our listeners in terms of is there anything that we can do you know people out there with choices that we have and and what would you like to to tell our politicians uh i, I just you know we're, we're a small uh, player in the in the big game and we're we see that there's uh increasing interest in in renewable solutions and so people have just got to stand up and 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 make that heard and uh you know I, th i think it's evolving it's going to evolve but it needs anyone who can give it a push from from politics or from individuals or from companies makes a difference and that's what it's about 
Thanks, Peter. Elodie, do you have any uh, last thoughts to leave our listeners with, us and our listeners? Um, just that if people are lucky enough to know how beautiful the biodiversity of the Great Southern Reef is, just spread the world. Just tell your friends, your family, just about anyone because there's about 70% of us, of Australians, that live within 50 kilometres of the Great Southern Reef and most people have no idea it even exists but also no people have no idea how beautiful it is and how worth protecting it is. Exactly. And I would like to remind again this uh, survey in Nature We Trust. Go to the website innaturewetrust.com.au. You'll find the report there. Uh, where 2,000 Australians have been asked about what they think about nature. And it's interesting. It's really interesting to to hear the answers. But I think, again, the most important one to me was that 75% of us in this survey, that 75% of us replied when they were asked about what are you going to vote and how will you vote at the next federal election, that people say that they will take into account the environmental and climate change policies of each of the parties when they consider who they're going to place their vote at. I'm surprised it's that low. I would have thought really if the message had got through to people, it would have been in the high 90s. 75% means that 25% of us don't care about the, the environment. And I find that very difficult. I think also it's it's important that the election is some time away and that people uh acquire whatever it takes whatever it is whether it's to be driven by that concern to not be quiet about it mm. in whatever way they're comfortable doing but quiet concern doesn't exist for a politician if you're quiet if you're quiet uh, and talk to others about it but not do that publicly that concern doesn't exist and i think yeah we need to realize that and we need to work with others to work out a way of, of showing that concern loudly or publicly. Dare to be the difference. Yeah, exactly. Be, be the, the difference. difference. We can all do that and up the spider crabs. <laughs> be the difference. Be the difference. Be the difference. I know the world's gone mad. It's true. Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. Am I gonna open everything up? Am I gonna let fuel refill my cup? Am I gonna be an anthem singing in the dark? Gonna light up like a burning heart? Am I gonna stand still as a rock? While everything shakes and tumbles off? Am I gonna remember the truth? Cause I wanna be nasty, wanna be brave Not let his fear make me afraid I don't wanna pretend I'm too small to jump the wall I 
I'm just trying to remember her voice Telling me that every day is a choice For where this good hurts bad But my child, you always can be the difference Be the difference 